Let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you. Indeed, what a glorious day it will be. Father, I know there are many in our congregation who are hurting. For some, this has been an eternal week. And for others, what looms in the near future is so heavy. And Father, I just ask that you would somehow clean the cobwebs, put the blinders on, and allow your word to speak to us as you promise it will as we start this journey into the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for your word. And it's in your son's name we pray, Jesus, amen. Well, if you would, turn to the book of Nehemiah. It is not in the New Testament. That's the clue. All right. So I know you're saying, what is a New Testament scholar doing in the Old Testament? This is dangerous. I know. Michael will sort me out later. Uh, or we got a few others, the elders, that might take me to task. I am excited because as we launch this new series, which we're calling Character in the Midst of Crisis, we're taking a study that uh, I was able to, to give for Iron to Iron Men's Bible Study. It has just been put into print, and there is a complimentary copy, one per household, uh, yours as you leave this auditorium today. It's got some graphs, some charts that I'm going to show today, and it's just nice uh, to have that in print form. I'm old school. I don't use computers I just asked Nate, I go kicking and screaming. So I always love having hard copies. So there's one copy per household. Uh, it's compliments of Iron to Iron Ministries on the book of Nehemiah. If, if you read the book, you still need to hear the sermon. <laughs> There, there's some differences. And so I, I'm not, I've had those professors where you're like, why did I go to class? He just regurgitates his book. No, we're not doing that. So just hang in there as we move through the book of Nehemiah. Well, if you've been to London and you've taken London, England, and you've taken the underground, you've heard the phrase, mind the gap, right? Mind the gap. And you're going, what am I minding? What am I supposed to pay attention to? Well, there's this gap between the platform and the train. And if you're not careful, you can trip. And so you hear the phrase, mind the gap. Throughout history, we've had men and women who God has raised up to mine the gap. We've got Moses, we've got David, the Apostle Paul, Martin Luther, Corey Timboom. The list goes on of individuals God has raised up to mind the gap, right? And, and, and we may not be one of those great stalwarts of the faith, but God has called us as well to step up to the plate. And the book of Nehemiah is dynamite. Because it does, it tells us a story of a man who was simply a cupbearer. He was a servant in the Persian court, and God raised him, and he willingly went and was used in a mighty way. If you would, look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, There was, these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Elkaliah. This is his father. That's all we know about him, and we don't know much about Nehemiah apart from what's recorded here. And it so happened that in the month of Kislev, this is December, in the 20th year, I was in Susa, the citadel, and Hamani, who was one of my relatives, along with some of the men from Judah, came to me, and I asked them about the fugitive Jews who remained in exile and about Jerusalem, the holy city. They said to me, the remnant that remains from the exile there in the province are experiencing considerable adversity. 
and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem lies breached and its gates have been burned. As we begin studying the book of Nehemiah, as with any book, it's important to understand the historical backdrop. I think of the time I studied a Christmas uh, carol by Charles Dickens. It was helpful to note that he wrote it in the 1840s to address the child labor that was being uh, abused, that system, uh, and how employers were abusing their employees in general, the labor force there in Great Britain. And so he penned that story, and it's helpful to understand the backdrop. And that's true as we journey into the book of Nehemiah in particular. So, let me give you an historical backdrop as well as some literary uh, comments and some theological comments about the book this morning. This is a bit of an atypical sermon for us, but I think it's so important that we know what's going on, who are the players, what's transpiring. This timeline you see gives us really two major empires that are down at the bottom. The first are the Babylonians, and we know Boo or Hiss, right? The, the Babylonians were uh, a mean lot. <laughs> they sieged Jerusalem. They took uh, the locals, three deportations, and relocated these people groups around the Babylonian Empire. And eventually, as you see in 586, the temple is destroyed. Now, if I asked you 9-11, where were you? You probably can immediately remember, right? It's, it's, it was ingrained. It was etched into your skull. 9-11, yes, I remember. It was horrific for our country. But far worse was 586 BC for the Jews because the temple is everything. It was their identity. It, it was not only the religious hub, it's the social center. It's the economic center. It's, it's all that they are is that temple. And with its destruction, all is lost. Yes, thousands were killed ancient historians tell us, as well as, of course, many that were exiled. 586 was horrific. 70 years transpires. And if we go back to that chart, and let's look at this in 586, excuse me, you look at in 539, the Persians come in and they will take over the Babylonian empire. I wish we had time. It's a very intriguing story. But suffice to say, the Persians take over the, the Babylonian empire. And their, their practice, their foreign policies were vastly different than the Babylonians. The Babylonians felt that if they conquered a country, they would take those people and they would relocate them over here. So we're gonna take those who live in Carmel, put them in Westfield, Westfield we're gonna put over in Zionsville, and they just shuffle everyone around because they felt that that was a way they could control the populations. The Persians were very sympathetic to the locals and they felt no we need to uh, appease them because then they'll be our best ally and so they they allowed exiles to return and in 538 BC 42,000 Jews plus returned to the land of Israel it's the first from Babylon now there were Jews who never left there were Jews who stayed. Some of them married other locals, and that's where the Samaritans arise, and we'll talk about them as we go through this book. But in this time frame, in this period of 536, as we look at this chart, we're going to see that's when the temple is rebuilt. Now, what do we know about the temple in, at this time frame in 516 when it's completed? It ain't what she used to be. 
It's not Solomon's temple. Solomon's was glorious. This was built under a guy named Zerubbabel. Yes, they have a temple, but we're, we're told in scripture they even wept. Because it's like, oh, it's not like, that isn't as good as we remember. But at least we have a temple. And, and that's great. Well, it's about 50 years later that Nehemiah comes onto the scene. Nehemiah is concerned, as we hear from this report, that the walls are still in ruins. And it's going to be his desire to rebuild the walls. And we're going to see this as we go through the book. It is an absolute miracle of what God allows Nehemiah and these Jews to accomplish. In 52 days, they will rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's an that's a enormous feat. And we'll, we'll talk about this as we go along. But so this gives us the, the backdrop. And we're told in the text that Artaxerxes is the current king of Persia. Now, lest you think that, well, he's just the nicest Persian you've ever met. The reason he's allowing uh, Nehemiah to return, it's for his own political interest. I've heard people use Nehemiah to argue for slave reparations. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's nothing of what's going on here. The reason Artaxerxes allows Nehemiah to fortify Jerusalem is because Egypt, which is just further from there, Egypt had already attacked Persia once. And so what is Artaxerxes needing? A buffer zone. He's creating these fortresses along the way, refortifying the cities to hold back Egypt if they should invade again. And who better than Nehemiah to go because Nehemiah was his cupbearer. He's one he trusts. He's the one who samples the baklava before he eats it to make sure it's legitimate and it's not tainted with uh, arsenic or whatever, right? And so this gives you this understanding here that Nehemiah is at the right place at the right time, but he didn't have to do anything, but he minded the gap. He felt God's calling and he moves in and God allows Nehemiah to return during this time frame. The temple's been rebuilt. The city is still in ruins and he will go and he will rebuild the walls and in 445 and he will also rebuild the gates of the city. There's more to that and we'll get to this in a minute. Uh, why the walls? Why is it so significant? But I want you to see that God's perfect plan in orchestrating all of this so that this could occur. Now, if you know much about the Old Testament canon, there's the book of Ezra, then there's Nehemiah. And these two books in the Jewish canon up until the medieval ages were seen as one book. You go, why is that? Why is that so significant? Now, again, it's under, this is helpful as we start our journey into Nehemiah. They're really laid out as one overview of God's restoration of his people. As you can see here, under Ezra, we are retold about how the house of the Lord, that is the temple, is rebuilt. He then, Ezra, will talk about reform that is brought. Nehemiah will take up the story and he will tell us how the walls are rebuilt and how reform is happening. But Ezra will appear in the book of Nehemiah. There is an overlap chronologically. In fact, many would argue the books weren't laid out chronologically. It was intentional here to kind of show us what God is doing. And that's what you can see in the layout of it. It's important to note that rather than adhering to, again, a strict chronological sequence, they never meant to do that. 
They arranged the events for the overall presentation to show that God is restoring the land. He promised. He promised before they went into exile that he would bring them back. And that's what we see God doing. I'm hoping that as we journey through this, those of you who are walking through some deep valleys, you're reminded, no, God keeps his promises because he does to the Israelites. He didn't have to. Just let them sulk and cry by the rivers of Babylon, right? No. No, he brings them back. And together, these two books serve as a manual on spiritual renewal. It's a call, one scholar says, to successful stages of spiritual revitalization. It's spiritual renewal. And you say, well, why is the house, the temple, and the walls lumped together? Because they're seen as one. Zion, Jerusalem, it's the holy city. And with that are the people, the city, the walls, and the temple. They're seen as one. And that's, you know, it's like saying, I go, I'm going to go out for ice cream. Well, I'm talking about an Oreo blizzard. It's still seen as ice cream. It's all lumped together. I couldn't think of a better analogy, but you get the idea, right? Certainly the temple is foremost. It's the most influential. But even in Nehemiah 12, the priests not only purify themselves in the temple, they purify the gates and the walls. And in chapter 1, verse 9, the Lord will talk about, this is my dwelling place, this Jerusalem. And so, when we look at this book, we're going to anchor back into Ezra a few times as we study it. As for the style or what we would call the genre, the literary style, I see some young people perking up. You've been studying literary types, genre. This is important because this book is a memoir. It was not, we're not giving you a boat to blow play as a historical writing. This is Nehemiah's recounting of the events. And it's told from his perspective, though at times it goes from first person to third person. All of a sudden we're talking about Nehemiah and he's not talking but that is common in memoir writings. What is very interesting though, unlike many ancient memoirs that are recorded, Nehemiah is not the center of attention. At times he kind of fades into the word work and you would expect us, I mean, this is the great hero. This is the guy that brought us in. No, it's, it's similar to the book of Acts. Peter and Paul, that's not the focus. The focus is the Lord and what he's doing. So you'll see that as we move through. Well, let me give you a little bit of the theology. As we dive into this book, what are some things that we want to see as we move through? First of all, is the sovereign hand of God brings about the restoration of Israel. Even secular authorities, Artaxerxes and the Persians, will do the Lord's bidding. That's amazing. And that's the world power of the day. Right? And if the Lord can use Artaxerxes, he can use the President of the United States... He can use Vladimir Putin for his end, right? He's the sovereign one. He's in charge. Nehemiah 6, 16. At the end of building the walls, it says, when all our enemies heard and all the nations who were around us saw this, they were greatly disheartened. Why? Because we're going to see as we go to Nehemiah, there's enemies all around and they're within in this book. There are many who did not want that wall rebuilt. They did not care for God's people. And it says, Nehemiah 6.16 closes, they knew that this work had been accomplished, listen to this, with the help 
of the Lord. Wow. It wasn't because Nehemiah was some great engineer or he put a team together that was better than any church building project. No, no, no. It was God's hand. As we look to build a home, a permanent home for CBF, may it be said, this was God's doing. Right? Not ours. And the day that that doesn't happen, we're in trouble. C.S. Lewis said, history is a story written by the finger of God. I was thinking about this. When you're wondering where God is in the world that you live, just spend some time opening up the history books. I mean, think about it. The captivity of the Babylonians was no mistake. It was horrific. It was awful. But because of that exile, formal idolatry in Israel's history ends. There are no more Baals. There's no more Astaroths. They're done. It's the first time. It took that much to bring us to this stage. The rise of the Persians was no mistake. The Lord used the people group to bring the Jews back to the promised land. The Egyptians, they were no mistake. Because the Egyptians were against the Persians, Artaxerxes knew he needed to re-fortify Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, this cupbearer, was no mistake. Because he's in the inner courts, he gets to hear everything that's going on. That's why he's privy to the the conditions of Jerusalem. It also gives him access to the king to say, you know, I'm very concerned about my hometown. So at some point in Israel's history, the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Egyptians, they've all been Israel's enemies. But in all of these cases, the Lord uses these people groups to carry out his plan. So when we look at what's happening around this globe and we wring our hands, we shouldn't be wringing our hands. God is in charge. Doesn't mean we don't do anything. Nehemiah understood that. But it's a recognition. No, God is in charge. And as Paul states in Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord? So God is in charge. Second theological truth that's going to come screaming out of this text, and you don't want to miss it as we read Nehemiah, is when you are struggling with who you are as a person, Or if if anyone cares, remember the God of history cares. He gave us his son. He even knows the number of hairs on our head. And for some, that's not that many, but he still knows them, right? He knows. He cares for us. This is the God who's orchestrating all the events on a cosmic level, and yet he knows us intimately. That's amazing. And when you think the enemy is winning, remember the Lord does not operate under the realm of luck chance. The Lord does not need, nor will he ever use, a four-leaf clover, a rabbit's foot, or a crystal ball. (laughs) One scholar states, God is working behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose. And I hope as we study Nehemiah, you will say amen and amen. Doesn't mean you're going to have answers. But behind the scenes, God is accomplishing his purpose. Nothing occurs in our lives by randomness or chance. Seemingly small and insignificant decisions serve his purpose for our lives. We think nothing of day-to-day encounters, so-called accidents of history. But God uses ordinary events to advance his purpose. And so as you study this book, keep this in mind. It's key. There's another theological truth that you need to hang on your beak. Secondly, the people of God are called to remain faithful and holy, no matter, watch this, the political or social climate. 
So easy, isn't it, to get sideswiped and, and, and to, to divert our attention on the Lord. Nehemiah, time and time again, he's going to tell the people, the Lord is your warrior. The Lord is your strength. You turn to him. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was a servant in a foreign court, and yet the Lord will use him in a mighty way. Listen to his prayer in 1.6. This book begins with prayer. Nehemiah says, may your ear be attentive and your eyes to be open to hear the prayer of your servant. I am praying to you today. This is Nehemiah. Listen to what he says. Throughout day and night, I've prayed on behalf of your servants, the Israelites. I am confessing of the sins of the Israelites that we have committed. Wow. First person plural. He's including himself. Not my dirty, rotten, scoundrel relatives. No, we have committed sin against you. Both myself, my family have sinned. And Nehemiah and the rest of the fellow Israelites were called to be faithful and holy. Were times desperate and the enemy real? Yes. At one point they seek to kill Nehemiah. There's this great political intrigue. Nothing new under the sun. And you'll see that as we journey through the book. Were they weary and discouraged? Yep. Were they confused and doubtful? Yes, certainly. Were they stressed and overwhelmed? Yes. And yet they remained faithful to the Lord and tackled a daunting task of rebuilding those walls in the gates in the midst of unbelievable persecution. At one point, they got a trowel in one hand and they got a weapon in the other. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> they had guards. It was touch and go. Third, theological truth you want to see as we go through this book is the deliverance from Babylon demonstrates, however, that the full potential of restoration between God and his people have not been yet realized. There is a sad undertow with Ezra and Nehemiah. Oh, the temple's been built in Ezra. All oh, the walls have been built. But underneath this, there's a need for reform. And they, they repent. Yay, yep, we got the word. We're gonna, the Israelites said, we're gonna follow after him. Next thing you know, we got another problem. Nehemiah will go back after he goes to Jerusalem and rebuilds the walls. He'll go back to Susa and lo and behold, the Israelites have wandered from the Lord again. So he goes back for reform. And, and this ongoing, why? Because both Ezra and Nehemiah indicate clearly there has to be a heart change. They look to the future, a future that we are so blessed to live in, and that is that a heart change comes through salvation in Christ in the dwelling of the Spirit. And it's reminded, we can't do this on our own, serving the Lord. We need his help. And thankfully, as believers living in 2022, we have the promise of the indwelling of the Spirit and a relationship with him. Well, let's look at the text then. With that as the backdrop, you got that all. We'll give you a quiz later today. But let's look at the text, right? It says in verse 1, these are the words of Nehemiah. And as we said, we don't know much about him. His daddy's mentioned, his brother's mentioned in the next verse. But we are told, again, this is in the month of December. In a sense, it states it's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. We know that we're in about 445 B.C., 
By the way, there are coins minted by King Artaxerxes that I could show you. There's reliefs of him. There's plenty of historical data to validate the text here, which I think is exciting. Not that we need it, but it's, it, just is, it just shows the accuracy of the word of God. Well, we're told he was in Susa. Why Susa? This is the capital, uh, one of the major cities of the Persian Empire. It's 850 miles away from Jerusalem. So we're a bit of a ways. In fact, if I showed you this map, give you this. So those of you who love this, in the first red on the right, that is Susa. Uh, And then, as you can see, uh, where Jerusalem is located Nehemiah hears about the report. And how does he hear that? The text tells us that it was while he was there that he inquired from some family members and other Jews have traveled. Again, he's, he's privy to what's going on. He understands the, he gets the political news, unlike others. Um, my wife's grandfather was the secretary to Admiral Nimitz during World War II. And he said, we were privy to things that no one else knew because it was discussed behind closed doors and I was able to sit in that room with Admiral Nimitz. And, and so the cupbearer, the trusted servant of the king, he's hearing all that's going on and know, knowing that what we have is something quite devastating. And again, notice what the text says. The remnants in verse 3, they're suffering, but the walls of Jerusalem lie breached and its gates have been burned. Nehemiah will break out with great weeping. And we'll look at this next week with his prayer. And he's burdened about the walls and the gates. Not because they need protection as a remnant living in Jerusalem, I would argue that would do little good for them. The issue is the walls and the gates are tied to the reputation and honor of God and his people. That's what's so significant. This is God's city, Jerusalem. I won't sing for you, but you get the idea. Ben's looking at me like, stop. Right? This is God's city. It's his reputation. And the walls are in ruins. This is, this is a travesty. I mean, look at 1.9. Look what, what he says in his prayer to the Lord. If you repent and obey my commandments and do them, if you disperse people in the most remote location, I will gather them. He's quoting what the Lord had said. Gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen for my name. My reputation, God says, is at stake with Jerusalem. This is significant. Nehemiah has a heart for the Lord. Yeah, he's got political skills. He's got apparently engineering skills. He can orchestrate events. The bottom line, he has a heart for the Lord and his reputation. And he's willing to mind the gap, to step up because of the Lord's reputation. And we'll see this as we go through the book. Uh, Next week, you won't want to miss his prayer at the beginning. It's so powerful. And it sets the tone for the entire uh, book. Well, there are some applications there in your notes today as we look at this. I realize today's a little unique in that we weren't in the text as much in order to accomplish a background to the book. But similar to Nehemiah, we need to be passionate about glorifying the Lord. Oh, he's not a fanatic. He's not a pushy, egotistic, narcissist kind of a guy. No. In fact, you're going to see quite the contrary. He's humble. He's reverent, he's businesslike, he's single-minded, committed to the, the, the honoring of God's name and the doing of his will. 
the mind the gap. It's a, a very short phrase. <laughs> and the reason being that when it came out in 1968, they didn't have the digital technology to make it any longer. But they've stuck to it. it because it's a simple phrase, but it has a very powerful message. The ramifications are huge. And when we're called to mind the gap when it comes to the things of the Lord, the ramifications are huge. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, and he says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead. That's Christ. He paid the price. He'll do the judging. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the message, be ready, whether it's convenient or not. Now listen to this, because it sounds very familiar in the world in which we live. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and instruction, for there will be a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. Instead, they will follow their own desires. They will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have this incessant curiosity to hear new things. They will turn away from hearing the truth. Wow. And Paul says to Timothy, preach the word in season and out. Be passionate about the things of the Lord. Be dependable because he's called you. And Nehemiah is saying the same thing. He's modeling for us what it means to be dependable. God wants us to be dependable even when it costs us. Wayne Grudem writes in his systematic theology, this is what distinguishes godly faithfulness from the ordinary dependability of secular society. That's what we're looking for. And Nehemiah models this. But not only do we need to be committed to the things of the Lord, we need to be dependent on the Lord. And that's the danger, isn't it? If we're overcommitted, at times we forget we need to be dependent. And Nehemiah doesn't forget this. He's quick to give God praise for any accomplishment. Look at chapter 4, for instance. The mighty men of faith, such as Moses, Daniel, Nehemiah, face great opposition and obstacles. And yet, they remain faithful and accomplish the God-given task because of their dependence on the Lord and recognition of him. The London Underground has not pulled the message, mind the gap. Why? Because people are dependent on it. It's interesting, the accidents that have occurred in the last year, the most common occurrence of accidents is not because they stepped in the gap. It's because they didn't want to ha hold onto the handrailings going down for fear of getting COVID. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> that is the truth, by the way. Uh, but uh, mind the gap, it's doing its job. And Nehemiah recognized our need to be dependent on the Lord. Listen to what he says in chapter 4, verse 19. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, now think about this, who are you? You're a cupbearer from Susa. We've been living here. And you come in and you tell us. And listen to what he says. The work is demanding and extensive. Thanks. Didn't need you to tell us that. Right? And we are spread out on the wall, far removed from one another. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, gather there, our God will fight for us. <laughs> He's understanding, we have to be dependent on the Lord. And the question, of course, that we ask is, are we dependent on the Lord? Think about it. I mean, do you pray before serving or being involved in ministry? 
whether it's helping out in the nursery, leading a Sunday school class, making coffee, or mentoring a friend. Do you pray first? When is the last time you've asked others to pray for you for a specific area of need in your life? Being vulnerable, understanding that you need their prayers. Do do you begin the day with prayer, acknowledging who the Lord is and your need for him? Or how's your devotional life? If we're dependent on the Lord, we, we have to be dependent on his word. And are you content with trusting the Lord when things don't make sense? <laughs> Do the litmus tests. How are we doing when it comes to depending on the Lord? The book of Nehemiah shows us the urgency of it. It's an important thing to note that while depending on the Lord, Nehemiah was calculated He assessed the situations. He was definitely prepared. But at the end of the day, he understood we have to be dependent on the Lord. Nehemiah shows that spiritual renewal requires rebuilding worship, rebuilding holiness, and rebuilding of God's reputation. And that is perpetuated by a continued commitment to obedience. So he's committed He's dependent, and thus it should not surprise us. The third point in your notes is the need for prayer. Nehemiah, this book begins with prayer, and it ends with prayer. It's amazing. Kind of reminds me of the book of Acts, right? Or even the Gospel of Luke that we just studied. Nehemiah clearly models what can occur when a righteous man prays. (laughs) Bound states, the story of every great Christian achievement is the history of answered prayer. And we stand here today after about a year, a little over a year and a half as a church body, withstanding a pandemic, (laughs) all that that entailed, trying to find a place for us to meet. And now the land has been purchased and we're looking to build. That's all the Lord. That's not us. You got a great team of elders, but they didn't do it. I can assure you. That was the Lord. It's God and our dependence on him as we move into this next phase. And I love that we are doing a capital campaign. It's one of the reasons why we're studying Nehemiah. It's so fitting as we look to this to say, Lord, this is yours. I told the elders, so I'm not concerned about the finances. I'm concerned that we love God and love others well. That we are dependent on him. And that's the, that, that is what rings loud and clear through Nehemiah. The resources, eh, our Xerxes took care of those. The task is getting the people to bow their knee before God and depend on him. And that's the prayer for us as a congregation, isn't it? It's a great book. If I haven't excited you about it, well then pick up the book and read that or read Nehemiah. But it's a great book. And I'm excited about our journey this summer through these few chapters. Father, we come to you and we thank you. Thank you for the book of Nehemiah. It's what C.S. Spurgeon said, a a good character is the best tombstone. (laughs) And we look at a, a book that's recorded about an individual and we see one who was a stalwart. He minded the gap. He stood up for you and and when there was no one to lead the charge he said I'll do it he had the the right time the right place in order to do it and father for each one in this room you've called us to mind the gap 
You've called us to be your witnesses, to, to make disciples. Father, that is what we need to be doing. Whether that's working with infants, reading the scripture and praying over them, whether it's hanging out with teens and playing dodgeball while quite quoting a Bible verse or praying we don't get hurt, or whether it's working with adults in discipleship and training. Father, we are called to make disciples, to exalt your name. Father, thank you. Thank you for the book of Nehemiah and our chance to journey through it together as a church body. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name.